We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media, and we're excited. Joining us today is Noor Nasir from Centro. She is currently the Senior Director of Media Innovations and Technology. Let's jump in and get to meet Noor. So how are you? Welcome. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you and excited to, to talk a little bit more with you about who you are, how you grew up, and all of that exciting stuff. But tell us a little bit about like what you're doing for work these days. Yeah. So like you said, I'm on this team that is called Media Innovations and Technology. And I think that's one of those ambiguous and vague titles that doesn't give any people clarity that they need to understand what it is that I actually do. What I'm really focused on is a segment of Centro called Centro Institute, and that's focused on client education. So sometimes other organizations will have like a knowledge center. There will be people that are paired with that knowledge center, subject matter experts, things of that nature. And so we're focused on making sure that clients have the tools that they need and the people that they need to have conversations to understand subject matter spaces that they just don't have the time to more deeply explore. And so um, people like myself are there to help have those conversations. I'm sure that happens a lot, huh? those conversations. They do. <laughs> Fortunately for me, they, have, they yeah. happen often. <laughs> That's exciting. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised and a little bit about your family. Sure. So I was born in Houston, Texas. My dad went to Texas A&M. So he and my mom had my sister and then me a couple years later. And then we pretty quickly moved to Chicago. So even backdating that to take it, take it a step back, my parents immigrated here from Pakistan and India. So they were actually some of the very first people, if not the very first people from our family to move to the United States. So we were, I believe, the first kids in our family to be born in the U.S. That's just a part of the story. And um, we moved up to Chicago or the greater Chicagoland area. And my plans were to pursue journalism pretty early in life. Obviously, I didn't quite take that path. Um, I went down a different roadway. There are a series of reasons for that too. I think that ties back to being the, the child of immigrants. I think when parents bring you from another country, at least in my case, the hope is to get you safety and security. And the idea of journalism sounds like a lack of safety from at least my parents' perspective. So they had a lot of fear there. They wanted to love and support their kids and myself, but there were concerns. So I feel like the essence of what I really wanted to do professionally was to be a storyteller, to connect with people, to connect with audiences. And so I think that's why I went down the marketing and advertising road instead. That's fascinating with your family having sort of those ideas already and then you having your passion and wanting to, to do that. How, how do you think that impacted, you know, your identity and sort of growing up? Yeah. So there were definitely a lot of different factors from the family that influenced my, the, the way that I grew up. And I think the way that I perceive things, I think I also should mention that I was raised in Wheaton, Illinois, which is a Western suburb of Chicago that was predominantly homogenous is can I just say white it was it was all white and um, I was some sort of ambiguous brown person and people didn't know if I had a Latinx background or where I was from remember 
very early on, uh, teachers threw me into an ESL class because they just presumed like, you're a person of color, so you must not be able to speak English. So I think that there were some of these kind of like small unintended prejudices that you continue to run up against. And then you have to find ways to navigate around those things. And it gives you kind of a thicker and tougher skin as you're growing up. So I, I think that some of those things aren't fun to deal with when you're a kid, but um, I think they've helped me build up to become the person that I am today. So a lot of impact, but um, again, like in the grand scheme of things, I think there, were, there was a lot of good coming from it. Amazing. How did you get started down your career path? Yeah. So like I was saying earlier, there was that interest in journalism. And so I was editor of my high school newspaper and I did have dreams of like still going against the grain and going down that journalism path. But I think subconsciously when there wasn't that full degree of familial support, I think, you know, at least for me, like I, there was a degree of wanting that support from the family, especially from parents. And when I, I think it, it didn't come in the way that I was anticipating or wanting it to. It just led me to pivoting and saying, like, what's something tangential that I can explore that I'm going to feel good about pursuing that hopefully they're going to feel good about too. So I think that's why I went this a little bit, uh, a little bit of a different way. Additionally, I did have curiosities around um, business. And, you know, marketing and advertising, I think they give you that nice, healthy balance of creativity and the exploration of creative concepts, but then also thinking about strategy and thinking about the analytical and data side of things. So that's really what took me down this road. My first job out of, well, it wasn't my first job. I actually started off in finance for a little bit, but then I pretty quickly figured out that finance wasn't the way for me. And then I quickly pivoted into advertising specifically into digital media at Starcom Media Vest Group in Chicago. A couple years at a holding company can really, um, they can really weather a person. It, it's not always easy working at a big holding company. Like you really are, are you a needle in a haystack? Like come up with like you're a, a tiny drop in an ocean, right? It's like really hard to get a good vantage point when um, there are so many other players in the mix. So switching over to uh, ad tech, that wasn't, Rather, switching over to a company that was focused in the ad tech space and more in a startup stage became a much more attractive vantage point for me to become maybe a bigger drop in a smaller pond. So that's that's how I shifted to where I'm at today. Gosh, and, and I, I was just about to ask you, you know, you've been at Centro for eight plus years. What's keeping you there? What do you love about Centro and the industry? But I think you just answered part of that of, you know, in your explanation of your career, anything more you want to add to that? Yeah, the thing that's really kept me at Centro for so long is having the flexibility in my particular position to focus on areas of my interest at any time that are ultimately going to serve clients. There's a lot of proactivity that comes with um, working in a role that is focused on education and education of everyone nationally. So I, I just have this ongoing, incessant curiosity for all the different spaces that we need to bring answers to clients on. And so um, I think that's what's really kept me here is that I can continuously iterate and come up with new and interesting things to do. Like under this role, um, you know, I work on presentations to bring to individual clients. We do presentations for larger um, forums. So if we want to go into a city and host a larger event like breakfast or a dinner, we'll do something like that. 
I also host a podcast as well. So there, there are many different ways that you can bring education to people and have an impact on the business and the work that they're doing. And, and so I think that's what's, what's really happening. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about the podcast, AdTech Unfiltered. You mentioned earlier your, your love for journalism. I, I would have to imagine that that's part of the reason why you're a podcast host. I think so. Maybe I haven't admitted that to myself or said that explicitly, <laughs> but I think that that is very true. Like there, and I'm sure you guys feel similar feelings. Like there's something incredibly satisfying about reaching out to people, people who you're curious about, but now you have a really legitimate reason for your outreach. And now you can ask them all these questions about how they went about getting on their journey and then how they're contributing to a larger community that you are also distinctly a part of. And that's something I just have a lot of energy around. And so I've just uh, enjoyed doing it. And it's a lot of work. I'm sure as you guys also know, like there isn't exactly like a big team. As I can filter does not NPR, right? Like we don't have a big production team behind us. It's me and one other person and some folks on marketing that help with promotion and, and that's it. But I think the drive and the intrigue for being able to have these interactions is so powerful. And, and that's what keeps me going. You're, you're absolutely all right. That's one of the reasons why Eric and I love doing this podcast is because we, we actually get to talk to people in our space and, and learn a different side of them as well, too. So it's, it's pretty cool. I want to stay on the journalism piece for a second. So you also wrote a piece in Adweek called Diversity, the KPI Ad Tech Forgot to Measure, which I think was a really powerful uh, and interesting piece. Can you tell the audience a little bit about it? Yeah. So what motivated me to write that particular piece was just the blatant realization that we were not having enough conversations at my company and in the industry at large on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that we hit a a terrible uh, boiling point with the murder of George Floyd, not to mention all of the other terrible killings that happened prior to that and saying like, we can't be, it's not that we were silent, but we can't be saying so little any longer. And that having pointed conversations at whether it was like at an organization, like the company that I work at, or having conversations with other people in the industry, just having that expectation that we should be able to talk about this publicly and then also demand change and be a part of the change. So that's really where my piece was focused on, was figuring out how can we rally other people to be a part of that change, whether it's senior leadership, whether it is people who manage other people at, let's say, more entry-level positions, or it's just you working on yourself. Ultimately, even if you are uh, a marginalized person or you're an underrepresented person, you need to do work on yourself too. And I'm really motivated to do that work so I can support other people. And then also like think about what are the ways that I need other people's allyship. I don't even think I do enough reflection on that. So I think the piece, like that's really um, the genesis of why I went about developing it is realizing that there are so many different facets and features to these issues and that whether we want to or not, we have to be a part of the solution. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it, it is great to see that there's a lot more chatter and action in our industry about these issues. But, you know, as I've told other people before, the one thing I'm, I'm most concerned about is the long-term impact. Right. So, you know, as all the, the emotion of the last four months or so dies down, you know, what are companies, what are individuals going to do to continue that momentum and sustain those efforts long term? Curious to get your take on that in terms of what you're seeing today. And are you optimistic about the long term sustainability and improvement specifically within our industry? 
I can say that I'm optimistic on a individual level and I'm also optimistic on a company specific level for the company that I work with. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to track what's happening at every other organization, but I know that not only is there very sincere intention at Centro, but that there are people like me who are watching other people in the organization and we have folks who are truly dedicated. It just takes a long time. I think that's mm-hmm. another thing is that like the work doesn't happen overnight. And right. even when people are dedicated every single day, there's so much work to be done. But we all have to be a part of the like unofficial oversight committee to make sure that that work is, is continuously happening. I do think while I may um, be a little bit less a part of larger community work that's happening. There's work that's happening through the IEB, the 4As, AdColor, other organizations. And they were already doing great work. They're doing even more great work. And there's so many more legions of people that are joining um, those forces. And so I, I do think I'm optimistic at varying levels that we are going to see the change that we haven't seen historically. You know, I want to ask you about you and your personal experiences so that others can learn or or understand what it's like. When you've handled issues of discrimination, when faced with them, help us understand, you know, how, how you dealt with that and help us understand a little bit about what that's like. I think something that I learned early on, going back to some of the stories from my childhood, is remembering and or realizing over time that I am often going to be a person who doesn't come into some sort of obstacle or challenge at the ground level. I'm coming in from the basement. Like I always have farther to climb and I'm sometimes and or often anticipating that extra level of work. Mm. So when that is your expectation, I think, especially knowing that I'm not the only one who's faced with those kinds of challenges, I feel energized that so many other people are out there doing the work and also calling attention to the fact that people feel the same feeling that I do, that you're at a disadvantage, that you're underrepresented, that you're dealing with microaggressions, that people are issuing prejudices against you, and that only very recently are we being open about that. We've been so fearful about other people's discomfort for so long, Mm -hmm. and now we're finally standing up against those kinds of things. And it's also important to be in forums like this one, where I'm speaking with the two of you, and we all have different identities and different types of underrepresentation. How do we want to support each other? How do we want to further these conversations? And I think you make some really strong and interesting points, you know, and so I I wonder, you know, do you have any recommendations or any ideas for how the industry can be more inclusive and how they can actually change? What are some of your thoughts on that? So one thing that I think the industry is doing right, that they need to be doing more of, is creating more spaces for conversation so that communities can get together and talk amongst themselves, but also so that communities can be spotlit and they're inviting those other folks that may have less knowledge and or haven't reflected as deeply as they should be on some of these issues. So recently I was on a panel for MITx, which is based out of Massachusetts and focused on um, technology. And they had a lot of folks on the phone who were attending this virtual conference and just asking really some of the baseline questions like, well, how do we find diverse talent? And honestly, like something that I wanted to respond with is like, you probably don't want to ask me because I mean, I have some answers for you, but you should find somebody who might be a little bit more specialized in helping you identify those solutions. 
I don't have all the answers just because I'm a person of color. And I, I think that's the thing is that a lot of times people are asking questions. They should ask questions. But I think the thoughtfulness with which the questions are being asked, who to ask those questions to, that's a skill set that needs to be refined over time. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm not opposed to having those conversations in a way to help guide people and help people pivot because they need that level of assistance because some people are really starting right from step one. They haven't made a lot of progress, but they're open to it. And I think that for folks that want to help create that change, not being afraid to step up and saying like, you guys have been going about this a little bit wrong. There are new nuances that you could be bringing into some of the strategies that you're looking to apply. Here are some resources and or things for you to just reflect on. That's great. You're very busy. Getting called in is help from a lot of different departments, a lot of different groups, a lot of different clients. How do you sort of manage a work-life balance? Is there such a thing? How is that for you? I've been thinking about that a lot now that I've been home for over six months. (laughs) And I will say, like, to be honest, there are many times that I'm sitting at my computer until eight or nine o'clock at night and there is no balance. I think the, the one thing to also bring up is that like from a personal standpoint, I don't have children. I'm not married. So I think sometimes there isn't that like knock at the door or that necessary whatever external factor that I have to say like, guys, I have to shut everything down and like turn to these other needs. And so that creates this seeming okayness that like, well, of course you can keep on working. You don't have to commute anymore. Like what's another two hours? Let's just like go ahead and bang this out. And then suddenly you realize like there's no separation between work and life on any level. Like at least once upon a time you had a commute and you were celebrating the fact that, well, I don't have to commute anymore. I don't have to be in the airport anymore. I don't need to deal with flight delays. I don't have to sit in Ubers and cabs and things like that. But now you're making up for all that by just all the extra time you're spending working. So this is my long-winded way to like actually get to your point, which is you have to be really intentional around setting up those times in the day or times in the week where you can focus on the things that are really important to you that don't have to do with work and saying that nobody's going to tell me to shut this down. And yes, I still have access to my computer. And yes, I could continue working, but I just won't because those other things matter just as much. Great point. Great point. What are you reading or following to stay informed on on the industry? So on the industry at large, I feel like I follow all of the classics, right? Like Ad Age, Ad Week, The Drum, Ad Exchanger, and also a couple of podcasts. So Vox Media actually puts out a lot of amazing podcasts. Some of them are focused on our industry mm-hmm. and or are tangential to our industry. So I, I find myself continuing to focus there. But then also diversity, equity, and inclusion work has become a part of my job too, right? Like whether I'm being asked to do it or because it's just of my personal interest. So Mm -hmm. I'm following a lot of people on Instagram that I unfortunately can't just rattle off at this moment in time. Um, But I've just, I, I like how Instagram has even done a good job of creating discovery forums where you can just start liking people that are focused on diversity work. At least that's how the algorithm has been applied to me. Yeah. And that's really been exciting having those those people presented up front um, so I can go ahead and follow them. The same thing has happened on LinkedIn. A lot of business leaders that historically wouldn't maybe have been prioritized and are part of underrepresented Black and Brown communities have been lifted to the top, again, at least um, in my newsfeed. So that's really given me a nice opportunity to be inspired by their work and, and learn from them. Awesome. Awesome. 
What advice would you have for anyone that's entering the ad tech space these days? So I feel like I've actually had quite a few conversations with people because uh-huh. for some reason, people do reach out to me, which is, which is a nice feeling. People are reaching out for advice sometimes. Um, maybe they want to work for Centro or maybe they, maybe they just want to work in ad tech. And I will say, especially if you're thinking about coming in at the entry level, that there are actually some expectations that sometimes may not seem fair, but people want to know that like, are you committed to this industry from the get go? Like that is the biggest problem that I am like you, you know, you're at live intent. Like, and I know that from like an agency perspective too, there's an antiquated belief that maybe still exists in some schools that they'll just show up for your first day on the job and they'll teach you everything that you need to know. But oftentimes you're not even getting the interview because you haven't demonstrated enough interest in that entry level position that you're looking to apply for. And so I've had some folks come to me and they're maybe looking to just develop that relationship, use some soft skills to get that foot in the door. But what I'm repeatedly trying to emphasize to people is you really need to dedicate yourself to showcasing and or exemplifying that you have an interest in the things that you're going to be working on. Because if you're not interested, it's going to be a drag. The first few years aren't easy, guys. So I'd like to ask you about heroes and mentors. Do you have any heroes or any sort of mentors that you've worked with or that have worked with you? And also, are, are you working with anyone else like that? So I think the question almost begs a larger question of what distinguishes a hero from a mentor is a hero, a person that you abstractly know because you read about them like RBG, who I do consider to be a, a feminist hero. As far as proper mentors, and I've really thought about it, I can't say that I've ever had one. And I think mentors and mentorship is something that is so commonly talked about, not just in our industry, but in other industries. And that it's almost just a circular conversation in my head where that would be something good. But how do you go about finding them? I advise other people to find mentors without even fully knowing like what they should be looking for because it is this personal relationship between you and potentially another person or a few other people. I think what I find myself more often doing is just using the internet, like a Reddit, for instance, to find information on something that I'm curious about, as opposed to like leveraging somebody else's time to find maybe a unique question that I'm looking for a solve for, if that makes sense. Um, And I I think sometimes there's a feeling of like a mentor, you know, mentor-mentee relationship feels like a marriage, right? Like something you want to keep for an ongoing period of time for some sort of long-term relationship. I think sometimes that by itself can be daunting. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something that um, I know I've, I've felt before and finding that right person to turn to can be complicated. It's something I've thought about a lot, I will also say, especially in this like post-COVID climate that we're in. So basically, long story short, it is a journey that I'm on. I haven't found anybody but it is uh, a goal of mine and, and hopefully a goal that I'll look to achieve while we're still out here <laughs> in isolation. Gotcha, gotcha. And one fun question I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, give us the top three apps that you use on your phone and you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. Although I think I know one of them. And one's <laughs> going to be Instagram, as you mentioned Instagram <laughs> earlier. <laughs> so. First, I want to ask you guys a question about that question. Have people come onto the show and then said email app or calendar app? 
Does that happen? <laughs> no, you know what? No one has said email or calendar, but I feel like everyone uses their email and calendar app and I'm trying to get some unique answers out of people. Yeah. So even to the Instagram point, I think what I've realized about Instagram or Facebook, if people even name drop any one of those apps, it doesn't actually give you tasty insight into that the person really is, right? Mm -hmm. Like you almost have to ask them who they're following on those apps in order for you to get some like deeper understanding of who they are. Because like who I follow is going to be totally different from somebody else. Um, So I, I will say that I'm, I'm very intentional about who I follow on Instagram. Like Sometimes, you know, somebody will put out like one funny post and next thing you know, you're following them. And then two days later, if I'm like, why the heck am I following this person? And so being thoughtful about that social media diet is something I definitely want to do. And that impacts my app consumption as well. So Instagram focus, like going back to an earlier point you guys brought up, focusing many people that are working on um, like DEI movements, Mm. um, learning from them. Like I was saying earlier, like I'm on a learning journey too. Like I want to help other people learn, but I also need to learn. So I've I've discovered a lot of interesting people um, through that work on myself. Also, I might've mentioned earlier, Reddit, you don't have to use an app, but I often do. So that's another one that I'm commonly using. Um, and then I almost like want to like look at my phone to think of like a third app that I'm like, <laughs> regularly using. I will say I found myself using this. I don't, I don't even know what it's officially called. Oh, I was going to say the heart tracking app, but I'll tell you an app I really use often. And I know like this is a podcast and I have a podcast, but like the podcasting app, the Apple podcasting app is awesome. Like all the access to free information from some of like the most talented people out there. Like everybody has a podcast, like most credible people, lots of people without credibility have podcasts, but a lot of credible people have podcasts and or credible people are guests on podcasts. And then you just get free listening and access to them. Mm. Like I have attended conferences where maybe I've paid $2,000 plus to attend, but then they just strip all the content from that conference and put it online for free. I'm like, I wouldn't have had to travel. I wouldn't have had to pay that <laughs> fee. Like it's, it's just incredible. I, I don't think we take advantage enough. Amazing. Amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you and thanks for sharing your stories with us. A lot of our listeners like to continue the conversation. How can they reach you or how can they find you? Yeah. So besides LinkedIn, you can just look me up by name, um, Lorna Sear. But additionally, and we, we didn't really touch on this. I'm also a photographer. You can mm. see my photography work at nornasir.com. I actually do a lot of work with people in the industry. So um, I know you guys are on the East Coast, but in Chicago, I take a lot of high shots. So quick, quick plug for anyone who's looking to do that in a socially distant, friendly way. I'm always up for that too. So either one of those ways. And also my email, nor.nasir at centro.net. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thanks everyone for listening. You can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and just search Minority Report and look for Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks. Thanks.